Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The Clearing is a show about crime and the trauma that can result from crime. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Well, you know, we were, we were talking about, you know, how my dad just, when he grasped a hold of a lie, how he just would not tell the truth. You were talking about the Kentucky Fried Chicken story I told. This is The Clearing. I'm Josh Dean. Episode 2, Creepy John Wayne. I don't know how long ago this was, uh... My kids were really young, and we were going to my parents' house for dinner. And as we walked into the kitchen, we saw the Kentucky Fried Chicken containers in the garbage. Not a big deal. We love Kentucky Fried Chicken. My kids love Kentucky Fried Chicken. So we go in, and, and you know, the meal is on the table, and it's all in different containers, you know, courtingware and things like that. Not a homemade meal, chicken. And you can tell. When you sit down at someone's home, you know, unless they got the secret recipe, there's a difference. That's Michael, April's husband. They've been together for 29 years, since he spotted her across the church one day in January 1990. Someone made a comment about, well, great, we're having Kentucky Fried Chicken. And my father's like, this is not Kentucky Fried Chicken. I made this chicken. And I remember just kind of looking at him and I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going here. I'm going to totally ignore this. We're just, we're going to have a nice family dinner. I'm not addressing this. And, you know, I give the kids the sign of just eat. And unfortunately, my husband couldn't let it go. Because he was going on about how great he is at making chicken and mashed potatoes and coleslaw that are just like Kentucky Fried Chicken. So, So I kept egging him on. So, you know, he makes comments throughout the whole dinner. Oh, this is good Kentucky Fried Chicken. Oh, these biscuits are just like Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I'm kicking my husband on the table. Just, would you just shut up? Just let it go. Who cares? Just eat. It's good. Then after a while of dropping hints, I'll just come right out and say, you know, you're an idiot. I see this stuff right there in the kitchen. But even in that situation, he would continue to... Say, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that he 100% made the dinner just for no reason. Yeah, what, why? It's like such a crazy thing to lie about. Like, yeah. yeah, there's. We all saw it walking through the kitchen, so it's silly. Just silly. Finally, my dad just, you know, in uproar and in temper, gets up from the table. I told you it was chicken I made. I'm a good cook, and I don't remember everything, but he never, never admitted that it was Kentucky Fried Chicken. Very often, when I tell people about April's story, they ask the same question. 
How did she not know that her dad was a killer? How did he keep that secret from her and the family for decades? And it's a fair question. I've asked it myself. The easiest answer is that Edward Wayne Edwards was a compulsive, sociopathic liar. But it's more psychologically twisted than that. Because this guy who was willing to die on a hill of Kentucky Fried Chicken was also a compulsive recorder of pretty much everything in his life. You'd think he'd want to erase all traces of himself, but instead... So anyways, here's some brief information to more or less give you an idea of how this all started. Remember those tapes that Detective Chad Garcia found in the trailer in Louisville? Their existence became kind of a white whale for me. As soon as I heard they were out there, I was obsessed with finding them. But Garcia didn't have them anymore. He said he turned all tapes and evidence from the trailer over to Ohio, as in law enforcement in Ohio. We'll get to why he did that later. For now, though, the tapes were in Ohio. But that was a while ago. Maybe they'd been destroyed. Oh, they are labeled. Yes. They are labeled exactly how Edward labeled them. Incredibly, they were not destroyed. Those tapes ended up at a small sheriff's office in Ohio, not far from April's place, in Geauga County. I knew Geauga County had several boxes of evidence from the Edwards case, but I had no idea what was in them. Geauga told me I'd have to hire a lawyer to get access to them. But then April called, and the door opened. Turns out it's very helpful to have the daughter of the murderer on your reporting team. Thanks to April's new friend, a very helpful clerk named Sharon, last fall we found ourselves in a conference room looking down at what, if you're making an audio story, is basically the equivalent of a bag full of gold. And how many cassettes are we looking at here? Oh, geez. So... I made a list of what I copied. Yeah, I don't have the I don't have the count on here, but it's about 60, I believe. Edwards taped a lot. Phone calls, conversations with grandkids, visits from cops, entire Jerry Lewis telethons. He dictated letters. Feedback, feedback, feedback. Still letter, still letter. This letter is going to Mrs. Frank. He was even rolling tape the day April was born, March 31st, 1969. I'm the only one in the waiting room. I've been here by myself now for about two hours, and no one to talk to, but I'm having fun with my tape recorder, and we'll always be able to keep this. I guess these tapes last that long. I don't think they would dissolve, disintegrate, or blow up like the Mission Impossible. <laughs> The sheriff's clerk, Sharon, she handed us all these tapes, neatly packed in three white boxes. When she first heard from April, a few months before our visit, Sharon was super curious to know what was on those tapes. I listened to probably the first few minutes of each tape, but he just sounds like a creepy John Wayne to me. I like the tone of his voice. The tone of his voice, the accent of it. My dad loved John Wayne. Yeah, so he kind of like, I can see how people could be manipulated by him. On one of the cassettes, Edwards appears to be dictating his bio. I was born. Notebook. On June the 14th, 1933. That hitch in the tape, the interjection of notebook, it's not an edit we made. It was on the recording. Edwards didn't always use new tape. He was often recording a new thing over an old thing, and sometimes the old tape bleeds through. This is how that tape you just heard actually begins with the sound of a tape recorder clicking on, and then a mysterious gasp. 
anyways. There's no way to know who that woman was. Believe me, we listened to every second of that tape to see if it ever made sense. Or what made her sound so scared. It's like a lot of the mysteries in the Ed Edwards story. It might be nefarious, or it might be nothing. Edwards was dead by the time I met April. I never got to talk to him. I've listened to dozens of hours of him speaking into a tape recorder, though. It's a very strange experience. For all the lies he told, Ed Edwards left so many pieces of himself behind. I've written about criminals before, and usually it's really hard to write about a psychopath, because even if they want attention, they don't want you to know who they really are. Ed Edwards, though, he basically left me an archive. He wrote that book about his life. He was recording himself all the time. There was even a point in his life where he was making media appearances. And we'll be looking at all that today, trying to understand just who the hell Ed Edwards was. Ed Edwards was born Charles Murray. Things were hard from the start. He never knew his dad. His mother, Lillian Myers, she disappeared pretty quickly too. She cleaned houses, and in 1934 when little Ed, sorry, Charles, was a year old, his mom stole $100 from a woman she worked for. She gets sent to a women's reformatory. 17 months later, she gets paroled, but she's in no shape to take her son back yet. In 1937, my mother committed suicide by gunshot. Lillian initially survived the gunshot, but died of septicemia a few days later. Lillian's sister and her husband, Mary Ethel and Fred Edwards, adopt the boy and they change his name to Edward Wayne Edwards. Mary Ethel's a good mom to him, and she really loves Ed, and he loves her. But things go sour there, too. When he's four years old, she gets too sick to care for him. Her husband drinks heavily. And consequently, I was put in an orphanage in 1939 for three years, period. Ed Edwards is seven years old. The orphanage is a terrible place. Edwards is a bedwetter, and the nuns shame him for it. They beat him, which backfires. He writes in his book that when the head nun asked him what he was going to do with his life, he snapped back, Sister, I'm going to be a crook, and I'm going to be a good one. He gets kicked out and sent to live with his grandmother. He begins to steal, and fight, and pull fire alarms. I love to watch the fire trucks, he later wrote. They were beautiful, white, shiny, and impressive. I love to hear the sirens. But most of all, I enjoyed seeing the confusion in the crowd because it meant that, indirectly, I was being noticed, since it was I who had caused all the hubbub. Soon, Edwards is in a series of juvenile homes, which turn out to be great for teaching young sociopaths how to be good at crime. It's at one, he later said, where he learned how to handle guns. At 17, Edwards enlists in the Marines, but he goes AWOL when he finds out he's too young for combat. War had just broken out in Korea. And from then on, he's on the run, For a decade, Edwards is wilding around America, chasing women and evading the law mostly. He does some time for car theft, and then again for robbing gas stations at gunpoint. Some kids dream of being astronauts or playing pro baseball. Ed Edwards wants to be on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. And in 1961, that dream comes true. The FBI called Edwards a, quote, far-roving escaped convict with an incredible criminal career and an ego to match. January 17th, 1962. Here he is, quietly reading news stories about his crimes, for some reason. Trace Arlington Bank Bandit, 
Fleas with Brown, $7,707. The gunman walked into the bank at 2.20 p.m. Tuesday, 10 minutes before closing time. The terrified Mrs. Sweeney said the man told her, I'm wanted all over the country, so I'd as soon kill you as not. The search for Edwards and a blonde, believed to be his wife, Marlene, continued to center in Cleveland. The FBI, in labeling Edwards a near genius, also said he is known for suicidal tendencies and is extremely dangerous. When he's finally caught after the string of robberies, Edwards gets his hardest time yet, at the federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. There... Finally, Ed Edwards sees the light. Hello, listeners. It is with pleasure that I come into your home today. That's from a self-published motivational record Edwards put out after he got out of Leavenworth. On the record, he credits his redemption to a benevolent guard who passed on to him this bit of wisdom. It seems that you are telling these lies because this is what you really wanted out of life. To have an education and to be a criminologist. If this is the case, why not take advantage of your time here at Leavenworth? Let time serve you instead of you serving time. Edwards heeds that advice, and throughout the 1970s, he traveled America, visiting radio stations, rotary clubs, school groups, church congregations, and police academies to share the story of how he turned his life around. And that is how we end up here. Ladies and gentlemen, Gary Moore! On a New York City soundstage, selling a story to the whole country on the game show to tell the truth. And here is the extraordinary story of Ed Edwards. I think you'll find it profitable. It says, I, Ed Edwards, was once on the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted criminals in America. Now I am a respected citizen in my community. Here's the story of my dramatic turnabout. There is a tremendous need for communication between parents and their children. I stress this point in my book, which is titled Metamorphosis of a Criminal, signed Ed Edwards. The idea of To Tell the Truth, in case you're not as old as me, is that a panel of celebrities tries to guess who among three contestants is, you know, telling the truth. In this case, they're supposed to pick the one guy standing before them who used to be a notorious criminal. Number one, what is your name, please? My name is Ed Edwards. Number two. My name is Ed Edwards. Number three. My name is Ed Edwards. Spoiler alert, number three is the real Ed. Uh, and number three, what, what was your first uh, term? Yes, that's Alan Alda. Uh, prison term. How, how long what was your first sentence, I mean? Uh, my first sentence was uh, in a reformatory for two years. I see. And your, and your second sentence? I uh, was also in a reformatory for uh, two years. How old were you when you uh, got out of prison? Uh, The last time I was released, uh, I was um, about 32. The the last time you were released. Contestants one and two are in dark suits and look a little like mobsters. Number three, again, is the real Ed. He's in rust-colored pants, a yellow shirt, and the kind of loud zigzag pattern blazer that people wore without irony in the 1970s. He's also the only one of the three who stares straight at the camera. Number uh, three... uh, do we infer that you did not have a good relationship with your parents? Uh, this is true. Mm-hmm. In what way, uh, number three, uh, in communications, as you indicate? Uh, I was born an illegitimate child, so I never had a, a real mother to speak of. Mm-hmm. Number two. What it's impossible to watch this and not think it was intentional. 
that of all the campy 1970s game shows, Ed Edwards chose to go on the one where people have to guess which of the three smooth-talking strangers is not a liar. Which, my God, do I relate. Parsing outrageous stories and then asking the real Ed Edwards to please stand up may as well be my job description at this point. As the show continues, actress Kitty Carlisle asks one of the fake Eds. And number two, why were you on the 10 most wanted list then? I guess a lot of the FBI men sat around, took a vote, and I won. Number three, what is considered Thank you. Um, how many, uh, uh, how old were you when you first went to the can, number one? I mean, the jail. <laughs> and then, finally. Number two was Luke. There goes the bell, and that means no more questions. It's time for the celebrity panelists to make their guesses. Comedian Peggy Cass finds number two too obvious of a pick and goes with three. He's the guy, she says, you'd trust with your life. By a variety of logics, we have arrived at the following conclusion. A pair of twos on each end, the votes are all in. Will the real Ed Edwards please stand up? Numbers one and two both fake like they're about to rise. And then actual Ed Edwards stands with the wide smile of a man who's just conned everyone into believing he's actually reformed. Before the real man speaks, Gary Moore gives the fake Ed the chance to talk. Let's find out, Ed, about your friends. Number one, sir, what is your real name, please, and what do you do? My name is Mervyn Spritz. I am the president of the Maryland Council of the Jewish National Fund. (laughs) Number two, Rick Klein, is a self-defense teacher who also does stunt work. There's one important point. You and I were chatting backstage, and I asked you what was the reaction in your neighborhood when you came out of the reformatory the first time. Uh, were you were you put down by your by your your fellow citizens, or did they look up to you? Uh, no. When I was released from the reformatory, uh, they looked up to me, and this uh, motivated me to go on to bigger things because this is why I was out there committing the crime was for the recognition. Mm-hmm. And this happens because a lot of things, people think it's a big shot thing to do, huh? Uh, yes, this is the, uh, they f- the more trouble you get into, the uh, bigger you are in their eyes. Well, I want to tell you, you look like a pretty big man from over here. <laughs> and thank you very much for being with, him, uh, with us, Mr. Edwards, and thank you, gentlemen, also. One of the things I can't prove, but have wondered about, was Ed Edwards out committing crimes the whole time he was touring his redemption story? Did he commit other murders? Whatever the truth is, redemption was the story he was selling at home, too. That's the father April knew. When he wasn't out touring, he was home in Ohio with his growing family, getting by as a handyman. I've talked to April about her childhood so many times, but it's been hard to understand exactly what this period back in the 70s looked like for her. And we weren't able to speak with her siblings for this show. So many things about April are objectively off the charts unreal, but she has a way of underselling it all. Not on purpose. She'll talk about pretty traumatic stuff. She just describes everything the same way. Matter-of-factly, I guess. So it's hard to get a handle on how bad things actually were. But then I saw this Facebook message that someone from April's past sent her, and it was completely revealing. It came from this woman named Diane Slaughter. She lives in Texas now, but back in the 70s, she babysat April and her siblings. April was eight then. They lived across the street in Doylestown, Ohio, near Akron. When Diane and her family moved to the block, the Edwards family was already living there, in a house Ed built himself. They were still unpacking when Ed showed up, all smiles, at their door. 
Here's Diane. You know, he said, hey, you know, I'm your new neighbor across the street. And then he presented, you know, my parents with the book that he had written. And he did, you know, disclose that he was formerly a criminal and he, you know, really was changing for the better. And um, my mom made the comment that, well, hey, everybody deserves a second chance. So she took the book and... Wait, wait, I'm sorry. That kind of seems like a lot of information to get (laughs) from your new neighbor all at once. Yes. (laughs) This friendly neighbor who, full disclosure used to be a criminal, told the new neighbors that he and his wife could use some babysitters if Diane and her sister were interested. They were, and their mom was okay with the idea too. But first she wanted to meet the rest of the Edwards family to make sure things were okay across the lane. Ed welcomed her with open arms. I mean, he just opened the door like, just come on in, hey. And he said, let me give you a tour. He showed Diane's mom around. Upstairs there were two big bedrooms, one Fred and Kay, and then the other rooms were smaller, and um, the smaller rooms had like bare bones, you know, just the basics, like no window coverings, no furnishings, no toys, accessories, uh, nothing you would expect to see in a kid's room. It was basically a thin mattress on the floor and a thin blanket on each bed. That's it. No pillows, no sheets, nothing. I don't think there was any furniture in the house. This is Diane's mom, Lynn Michaels. She'd just gotten out of the hospital when I called her at home. This tour continued down in the basement, which was mostly unfinished, just a dirt floor. But Lynn noticed a couple things. The first is that there was a spring, as in burbling groundwater, that seemed to be the family's water source. That seemed a little pioneer days for a 1970s house. Worse, the boiler, the house's heat source, wasn't actually hooked up. They may have burned pallets for heat. And when you say there's no heat, you mean literally, it's not just that like the heat was off. You you feel like there was literally no heating system? Well, you know, he told me there was no heat. April's told me plenty of stories about her dad's dark side. He could be violent and abusive. This is something I hadn't thought of before, that there were just basic needs that she didn't get growing up. Diane said the older kids seemed a little protective of the younger ones, and that they could all be skittish at times around their dad. But Ed was all smiles, she said, until he wasn't. There was a time me and my um, older sister had went down to the Edwards, and um, I think there was only... Some of the kids were outside, and I was like, well, you know, well, like, where's your brothers? You know, where's everybody else at? And um, it's like they're being punished. I was like, oh. I said, well, are they in the house? And he's like, nope, they're in the garage. Edwards invited Diane and her sister to come take a look. So they walk around to the garage, which is open. Along the wall inside, there are hooks for storing tools. And... The two boys, he hung them on the hook through the belt loops so that they were just hanging off that hook off the ground. And I was like, why are they up there? He said, because they're being punished. And I was like thinking to myself, oh, my gosh. And they were not allowed to have food, water, or use the restroom. For how long? 
Um, I don't know. But I mean, we're talking about a long, we're not talking about five minutes. Oh, no, 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 no. Those boys hung there for a while. And then after a certain period of time, we were all told, y'all get out of here now. Both Diane and her mom remembered seeing bad bruises and marks on the kids. Evidently, the family wasn't good at hiding them. Kay had them too. Lynn worried about her. She went over a few times when she knew Ed was out somewhere to have tea. And she described April's mom to me the way many others have, as a shell of a person. Like whatever light was inside had been turned off. Diane saw it too. There were very few times she would come out when we'd all be playing outside, but there was this one time I specifically remember where everybody was having a good time. You could, I mean, she was, you could tell she loved those kids, you know? The kids were running around, and some of them were, like, holding on to her wayside and stuff. And, you know, it was one of the few times I ever saw Kay smile, like a genuine, she was just having a great time with the kids. Yeah, that was, like, one of the only times I ever remember her smiling. Hmm. Diane told me a lot of crazy stories, but one really stands out. We were playing, and um, Ed had told us, hey, hey, all you guys, you know, gather around. You know, I got something to show you. Ed corralled the kids all around to the back of the house, where the yard blurred into woods. He told them all to walk out into the woods and look around, like they're on a scavenger hunt. And so he tells us, "Go, keep going, you guys, keep going, you guys. Well, we get to the edge of the woods, and we're thinking, well, we don't see it. He's like, keep looking, keep looking. And... So then he tells us all, spread out just a little. You're going to find it better, you know. So, you know, we kind of spread out maybe five feet from each other. And he goes, a little bit more, keep going. And as soon as he finished that sentence, it was all of a sudden, bang. And all of us just froze. And I quick turned around, and he had a black handgun in his hand, And he still had his arm raised in our direction, like he never lowered the gun. He started just laughing, laughing. We didn't know what to do. We were all like scared to death. And he goes, oh, it's okay. Come on, come on, come on. Let's go now. And I, my feet could not move fast enough. I went from the side of the house, hit the driveway. I was too afraid to even look back. I mean, we're, we're just sort of sitting here in silence trying to process that story. Um, so you fired a mm-hmm. handgun either over your heads or between you guys for fun? I mean, Yeah, I mean, he would probably have been... Oh, gosh, at most 10 to 12 feet. And, you know, you figured there's got to be five, six, seven, maybe seven or eight of us kids. Now, mind you, this is his kids also. Diane never told her mom that story. She's not sure why. It didn't matter. 
Lynn didn't need any more evidence to make her wary of this new neighbor. One day, Ed showed up at her door again looking to borrow something. It wasn't butter. He asked Lynn if he could borrow her shotgun. She couldn't believe what she was hearing. I don't loan out my gun, she said. Okay, what about your husband? You can ask him yourself, Lynn said. To her great surprise, her husband Rod actually did loan Edwards a shotgun, a single-barrel 12-gauge that he'd had since he was a kid. So then, not long after that, Lynn's standing in her kitchen looking out the window. She just noticed one day a car come barreling down the drive. They just went flying up Kevin Drive, flying. The gravel was flying. She was like, boy, they're going awfully fast. And they pull in the Edwards driveway. And then she, she states there's a flurry of activity. There's a lot of stuff going on. And she notices they're loading up Ed's El Camino. And then the second male all of a sudden put all the kids and Kay into his car. And they just sped off like the guy sped in. No notice, no hi bye, nothing. Just they were gone. And you never saw them again? Never saw them again. I saw those two vehicles go, and it's like, well, there went Rod's shotgun. About a week later, this uh, black car pulls up to my front door. And it had sheriff on the side. And he was in uniform and come and knocked on the door, so my mom answers the door. This guy in a black hat and a sheriff's badge on. And um, he had sunglasses, a thick mustache, you know. And he said he was, you know, canvassing the area. And he was trying to, you know, get information on a man named Ed Edwards. And so he asked my mom, you know, did she know anything about Edwards? You know, kind of open-ended questions. And she replied to him, you know, not a lot. And then the sheriff proceeds to say, well, can you remember anything suspicious about, you know, him, the family, anything? Mom said, you know, well, his wife and his children appeared to be, you know, withdrawn and something didn't seem, you know, quite right with the family. I told him about the shotgun and um, I can't even remember what all I did tell him. But the general idea was you're, you were telling him that you thought he was a, a bad guy or a suspicious guy or? Yeah. And, you know, the sheriff just had a blank look on his face, and he's like, well, anything else? And she goes, well, no, no, not really that I can think of. A couple days later, my mom, it hits her. Oh, shit, that was Edwards. (laughs) Just to be clear, the cop with the mustache, that was Ed Edwards. Uh, Trying to picture, I mean, because he had sunglasses and a, and a hat. He had disguised himself pretty well. Oh, he hadn't. It was a fake mustache. It was a bad fake mustache. I can't believe I fell for that. <laughs> Coming up, our investigation of Ed Edwards continues. But this time, it's Ed Edwards himself who's doing the investigating. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. So when we left off, Ed Edwards had just piled the family into his El Camino and left yet another town. Do you remember what your dad would tell you when you're like, okay, we're leaving again? Last summer... April, Jonathan, and I were driving around northeastern Ohio, revisiting that period of April's life. Same story most of the time. The, the bad people had found us. Who were the bad people? Supposedly the people that were after my dad for my dad, turning them into the police. So he was, like, basically telling you guys that you were constantly on the run from bad people who right. wanted to get him because he was a good person? Yes. Can I just take a moment to point out how crazy this lie is? I mean, of course Ed Edwards wasn't going to say they're leaving town in a rush because he just committed a murder. But there are a million less absurd lies he could have gone with. He got a job. He owes some dude money. But he went with, I'm a good guy fleeing bad guys? We're here in Ohio to fact check April's memories, basically. It was her idea. Stories like the one Diane and Lynn were telling. That was April's day-to-day. I'm not a trauma expert, but I think it's fair to say that if this is your life as a child, you have to manage it. You forget some things, you blend others together. Especially, you normalize. But if 40 years later you decide you need to go back into that memory bank to find some answers, it's a mess. April will remember something, share it with me, then immediately question the integrity of that memory. So she wanted to come here, to her physical past, to former homes like Doylestown, Ohio, and see if she could jar some things loose. Because that lives up on a hill, too. I would love... See, this is where it just drives me crazy. I want to know how accurate are my memories. There's this one memory she's described to me a bunch of times. It's a weird one. Simultaneously filled with meaning, but also incredibly vague. It comes across more like a dream than an actual event in her life. I've often wondered, assumed even, that it's just something her mind concocted at some point. Some little glitch as she sifts through her past. But April said, in Ohio that she thought it happened around here, in a park not far from that house, across the street from Lynn and Diane. 
there was like a parking area and the weeds and trees were behind us. The story is never exactly the same, but it's always some version of this. Her dad piles them in the car and drives them to a state park. They never go hiking, but they do on this day. They start walking, kind of fast. And then, at some point, he leads them all off a perfectly good trail into the thick brush, like he's looking for something. So here we were, in the parking lot of the state park near Doylestown. April remembered there being a little pond nearby. We looked around. There was no pond. But there were a bunch of weeds, wildflowers and sawgrass and cattails, which she promptly led us into. The whole time I was thinking, this is nuts. We're literally wading through weeds in search of what exactly? I really thought the trees were farther off in the distance, though. Truly. Like, that distance. I'm I'm just shrinking down because I'm like, if you ever, I'm making myself shorter. April's now squatting on the ground. (laughs) She's she's approximating the height of an eight-year-old. Yeah, I mean, I think an eight-year-old would be the height of those weeds, I know, probably, I remember, right? I remember going like this with the weeds. M- moving your arms, arms around. Yeah, like I was swimming. It got windy, so Jonathan went to the car to change mics. But suddenly April started yelling. April, wait, wait. And then, there it was. Okay, so there's the pond I was talking about. So you had to, we have to come up on this little hill off but the I parking think there lot. But I think there used to be a dirt pile here. Like maybe they were digging something or building something. We were standing up on this little rise, our backs to the parking lot, looking into a muddy pond. April was still processing the scene. Things weren't exactly as she recalled them, but still, you knew she was right. She'd been here before. She was a kid, like a second grader. She remembers how urgent it seemed, her dad pulling ahead with her mom. And then she caught up and looked and there were cops and firemen and police tape. He'd led them straight to a crime scene. This strange memory of her dad bringing her to a crime scene in Ohio, it was true. You could see the relief on her face. I'm not crazy. It also made me realize she wasn't crazy. All these half memories that keep surfacing, I need to take them more seriously. So the archives are in here. Um, I have them buried in the corner. Later that afternoon, we were back at April's house in her bedroom. It also has plush carpet and a lounging area with a couch, plus a balcony. There's lots of space in Ohio. She pulled out three carry-on rolly bags from a closet, unzipped them, and laid everything open on the floor so we could pick through these archives she's talking about. There are newspaper clippings, transcripts of conversations typed on an old typewriter, pages torn out of telephone books. Family pictures. His mom's birth certificate. Mm-hmm. There's my dad. Of his, and he, wasn't he a cute little boy? All this stuff was taken from Edward's trailer when Detective Garcia arrested him. We start taking stuff out of the bags and sifting through. It's a lot like parsing conversations about April's past. There's a lot of stuff in there, but it's kind of a mess. Is that a snakeskin? That's a snakeskin, yep. The first time we went through it all, I didn't even know what to look for. April just pulling things out, talking about her dad. When he went to Kentucky, I I have picture after picture. Here's one of them. He went around taking pictures of grave sites of his family. So I don't know if he was, you know, researching 
you know, family history. I have no idea. It turned out what Edwards was doing was trying to piece together his own life story. He just found out, as an adult, that he'd been adopted. That's why he was doing all this research. Whereas, on the 8th day of February, 1946... Ed Edwards, of course, kept an audio record of this work. He recorded himself visiting graveyards and digging through files at funeral homes and in Ohio courthouses. The probate court of Summit County, Ohio, appointed Mrs. Annabelle Myers a guardian of the person and estate of Edward Wayne Edwards. New start. Guardianship of Edward Wayne Edwards. This talking from Oakwood Cemetery on 10-6-38, removal of Shirley Myers from single grade 31. Cause of death, pneumonia. Length of illness, three weeks. Name of father, Ross, O-R-O-S-S. <clears throat> Civil docket, number 519, in That's him reading a legal document he'd come across. One stating that he was about to be born a bastard child. It's from a civil suit his mother filed against the father he never knew for child support. Lillian Myers, resident within said county, and made complaint under oath that she is an unmarried woman, that she is now pregnant with a child, which if born alive will be a bastard, and that Charles Murray is the father of said child. I took some of the files over to Staples to make copies, and I started going through them in my rental car in the parking lot. I came across this transcript of a phone call Edwards made to a woman who drastically altered the course of his life. Her name was Esther. She's the one his mom, Lillian Myers, stole $100 and $1 bills from. She goes to prison, Ed is turned over to relatives, and he doesn't learn the truth about his real mother until he's 36 years old. One day when April was a baby, Ed found Esther. He took the local phone book and looked up everyone with her name, like the Terminator did, and he called her. Now then, we have a five-month-old baby, and I'm here babysitting by myself tonight. <laughs> he explains that he's the son of the woman she turned in. Um, that was your mother? Yes, that was my mother. She wasn't mad at that death. No, my mother committed suicide in 1938. And, uh, of course, my mother wasn't married at the time, but I was born a year and a half previous because I was an illegitimate child. And uh, it's just been a couple months ago that I have found out that I was adopted, and I found out anything. And so I have been uh, checking all through the past here to find out what I could come up with. What good will that do? Pardon? What good will that do you to Well, actually, uh, it's giving me a good peace of mind because I still love my mother. And even though she may have done... That's right, and there's nothing that can make me change my mind. Once they're past the awkward niceties, Edward starts to probe for more details. What kind of business was it? What exactly happened? Esther told him that she called a service to have a girl come clean the house, and his mother arrived in an evening gown, which Esther thought was weird. Because it is weird. Later, when Esther got back, she noticed $100 missing from her bedroom. And the police got her. Mm-hmm. About how long did it take the police to get her? Oh, it took a minute, but in the same day, they got her. 
Edwards basically interrogated the woman who had his mother arrested, like he was a reporter or a cop. Well, I want you to understand that uh, I am certainly not holding anything against you. You did the right thing. Did anybody with you yet? Uh-huh. All right, thank you very much. Mm-hmm, bye. Well, the fact is, Lucille, I never really knew. This happened so many years ago. I mean, it was heart-rendering. It was sickening. After that conversation, Ed Edwards calls his Aunt Lucille, his mother's sister. She's upset to hear that he's been digging up the past. And he's upset that he's never been told about it. People just decided for him that it was better to not know the truth. Well, here's the thing, though. Had these things have been told me, I would have known about them, and I wouldn't have had to go out and find out myself. I don't think it was my place or anybody's place to tell you that. Listen, everybody's got skeletons in their closets, and I'm not about, you know, to go dig them out. I, I can't see any point in trying to find out all this stuff. Well, uh, I do in that it involves me. It is part of my life. And it doesn't make me a psycho, Lucille, trying to find out a little bit about my life. Are you going to keep all these records about yourself and give them to um, April? I'm going to tell April everything there is to know about me. Well, I don't think that is normal. I don't think that is normal in a person. But you think that you want April to know all about you. Uh, April will know all about me. I plan on keeping nothing from that girl or any other children we have. Because they will then not have to go out and be told different stories by different people and they won't be fed a bunch of lies. They will know the truth. Yeah, I've actually heard this tape before. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Hypocritical. April remembers these tapes well. She was a teenager when she heard them for the first time. Ed would just pull them out and play them occasionally, the way another dad might show vacation slides. Like, I had heard the tape when my mom was in labor with me. Um, he had quite a collection of 8mm films. I, I wish I knew where all those films went. Wait, there are films too? How am I oh just hearing gosh. about these films? Reels and reels of 8mm film. Where reels are they? Reels and reels. I don't know. April says her dad was always using tape like this to manipulate family members and create drama, especially fights. He once took a phone call he taped with her and edited her words to make it sound like she was undermining her siblings, to keep them at each other's throats. Then he played it for them. She thinks that's what he was up to with Lucille. I do remember thinking that he wanted me to be mad at Lucille. I just remember thinking it was stupid and that it was petty, and I think he was going on about the injustice that was done to him. He, in other words, he wanted me to feel sorry for him, and I didn't. I actually remember thinking that I felt sorry for my my aunts um, and that my dad was cruel. I mean, does any part of you feel bad at all for I mean, he did have a, a rough childhood. I mean, it's not it's not the way anybody should be brought into the world and raised. No, but you have to remember there's also another side of the story. And I, my aunts would talk about my dad, and they wouldn't talk cruelly about him. They would just tell stories. My dad was a horrible child. He was very mean and nasty. Um, they did try loving him. It's just that he pushed them away. That's what I saw. 
Every time I mention a piece of tape we found, April asks to listen to it. She says she can hear things in her dad's voice that wouldn't be obvious to other people. Certainly not to me. She might be the one person in the world who understands him best. When you say sometimes that you're the child of the five, you're the most like him, you feel like you got the good qualities and not the bad ones? Oh, no. I got as many good qualities as well as bad qualities. B- believe me. Um, I, I have a temper like my father. I've lost control of my temper. Um, but there again, I choose not to go past a point. You lose your temper. You're not murdering people. Correct. Right. Uh, yeah. That would that'd be a hell of a twist at the end of the show. <laughs> Josh, seriously? Uh, Gotta keep things light. Come on, we're talking about murder here. (laughs) No. Next week on The Clearing, the gruesome Laurel and Hardy routine that led to an Ed Edwards confession. The story of the other murders we know he committed. Clearing is a production of Pineapple Street Media in association with Gimlet. It's produced by Jonathan Menhivar and me. I'm Josh Dean. Our associate producers are Josh Gwynn, Dina Kleiner, and Elliot Adler. Editing by Joel Lovell. Our fact checker is Ben Phelan. Our theme song is Modafinil Blues by Matthew Deere. Music clearance by Anthony Roman. The episode was mixed by Jonathan Menhivar and Hannes Brown. Special thanks to Eleanor Kagan, Christina DeJosa, and Ariana Martinez. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. If you or anyone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. We'll see you next week.